As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Let's go. Welcome to Citizen. We have a very special guest today. Author Tony Woodleaf, Senior Executive Vice President of State Policy Network and author of I, Citizen, a blueprint for reclaiming American self-governance. Uh, Batya hooked us up. And since I have a show called Citizen, you've got a book called Citizen, she, she thought we should have a conversation about it. So here we are. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. For That's sure. Right. Uh, yeah. So before we get into the book, tell, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and what it is you do. Sure. So I, I work with State Policy Network, uh, which is a nonprofit. It's been around for 30 years. And uh, what we've done is built up uh, state-based think tanks, uh, litigation centers, investigative journalism centers, all, you know, center right, mostly focused on, you know, economic policy to try to be, you know, a force for libertarian conservative ideas at the state level. Um, and my job there is, you know, try to help people do their jobs better. But I also uh, run something we call the Center for Practical Federalism which is trying to mobilize all these state-based groups to push back against federal intrusion into states and communities mm -hmm. um, where, where we think it's inappropriate and where it's harmful. So that's what I do. Yeah. So uh, that will, this, this will be our first immediate detour because uh, I'm not sure that most voters understand the principle of federalism that yeah. is the foundation of our goddamn system of government. For some reason that, That that one slipped past everybody in in uh, in high school, but th this is the law of the land, and it's the ninth and tenth amendments of the Constitution, right? The federal government's power is ultimately limited by what power is authorized in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, and nothing further. That's the way it's supposed to work, right? But we have these layers and layers of laws in eighteen and twenty one U.S. Code, the IRS Code, and all this other bullshit. Um, and when Roe got struck down by the Supreme Court, as it should have been, not because of the issue of abortion, because of the issue of federalism, people lost their minds, right? right. But right. I, it, maybe it's just a conditioning, it's, it's a combination of the um, conditioning of the media to be anti-whatever-the-fuck and then just not understanding mm -hmm. how federalism works. But you would think that most people, given the opportunity to understand what's happening, would be happier that more control over their day-to-day -day life is back in their hands. Right. Right. I, I think so. Like, 
So I, I, I think the you know the the premise for federalism is actually in the preamble mm. to the Constitution. You know, we the people, in order in order to to form a more perfect union. And so you've got there's this understanding that people in their communities are going to come together and figure stuff out, mm-hmm. right? And uh, and it's not going to be a libertarian nirvana, nor a progressive nirvana. Right. It's going to be what they figure out together. And I think um, sort of the root of elite intellectual resistance to that idea, to federalism, on the right and the left, is a fundamental distrust of the people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which, you know, people in large groups do really dumb things sometimes. So I'm not a fan of mobs. Uh, but when we talk about community self-governance, we're not talking about a mob coming together to vote or burn stuff down. We're talking about working stuff out mm-hmm. on a daily basis usually voluntarily you don't even vote right most self-governance should not involve a vote mm-hmm. a vote in, at one level is a recognition of the failure of the community to figure it out that's when you vote um and i don't think elites like that right they're kind of ideology driven so so yeah federalism gets neglected um or contorted by folks on the left and the right because they fundamentally don't like the average american they don't trust them to make decisions because they already have it worked out how they think we should live sure. our lives. And that's, uh, you know, the, the left gets accused of the nanny state ideology a lot, but it's not just the left, right? I mean, the, the right is just as uh, guilty of trying to control people's lives. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, so then federalism becomes this convenient thing, right? And the worst place I think you see it for Republicans is they're all about federalism, which is a principle. It's not just a an artifact of the Constitution is based on a principle that you need to put as much authority as close as pop- possible to the people who are going to live under it. Right. That's a principle, right? Uh, but I see so many of my Republican friends, like, they forget that principle as soon as they get to the state capitol. Like, they don't want to let Austin, where you are, make its own weird rules, right? Because they don't approve of how Austin wants to govern itself. So they're happy to intervene at the at the state capitol to stop austin the city from governing itself because they don't like the outcome um which i get you know there are limits on on what you want to allow you got to protect people's property and speech and so on but i think the right definitely they're for federalism uh when the outcome suits them and for for me that it's more of a principle right let people you know make their own decisions let san francisco mess it up sure i, I love when they mess it up right it's such a great lesson for the rest of us why would you stop that you know uh but some of my conservative friends disagree uh yeah well you know the uh the idea of authority as close as possible to the actual problem right which we we would say is at the individual level that's a good leadership style right so that in the military that's what we do we we try to you know, every, we we have a, a a mission, but any commander that shows up with the mission in hand as well as a plan for each individual, that's not a good commander. That's not somebody who's trained their people properly. It's somebody right. who's deeply insecure about their position, and <clears throat> that's where most of this springs from. It's just a deep-seated insecurity, or as you uh, said, a fundamental distrust of the people. Uh, there's right. also some relationship between being relieved of a responsibility and your ability to perform that responsibility downstream, right? People lose the edge, I guess, or the experience or the confidence or whatever it is to perform those responsibilities. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. So you, you see an atrophying of the democratic muscle. Mm. Um, and there's also sort of a cheapness, right? I mean, it, 
if none of your choices as a citizen um, are going to affect the outcome, you are free to adopt the most extreme posture possible to uh, say terrible things about the other side online because you never have to see them at the grocery store, you know, watch Fox News or MSNBC and rage at the sky. You're not accountable for any kind of outcome. Um, and you get to complain. You get to be the victim. Sure. And that, of course, is destructive to democracy. So the idea Tocqueville had, what he thought made America so strong compared to, say, France, his home country, which was this sort of cobbled together country based on the suppression of local diversity and culture. Right. Um, he said you had this deeper patriotism in America because it's rooted in communities where people solve a lot of problems on their own. Sure. Yeah. And so somehow. Oddly, that led to a deeper kind of commitment to the country overall. And you think, uh, so the difference between early democratic France and early democratic United States, there's something about um, the ideological nationalism that existed in Europe and continues to exist in Europe. But our, our, our nationalism in America was supposed to be based on principles, right? Like self-governance right. and individual liberty and things like that. Not Not on... This is what it means to be an American. You're, you, here's your demographic information. No, it's like, here's what you believe to be an American. It's that liberty above all else, right? That was kind of the point. Yeah, I think there's that. And, and I think it helps to remember, too, that um, you had this um, sort of organic seeding of communities when you had these settlers come over. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, you ended up with very different political communities in, you know, Pennsylvania versus Rhode Island versus New York, you know. Uh, versus Connecticut, which is awesome. Uh, and it, but it was all rooted in, in sort of commitments they made to one another just to survive. Mm -hmm. And then you end up with these state constitutions that in many ways we would say are illiberal, right? Because they were they, you were allowed to require religion and restrict mm -hmm. speech and all the stuff that now we tell ourselves, um, you know, no government can do in America because it says so, because we place those limits on our federal government. Mm -hmm. And then we began to say that that's a limit on all government. Uh, but I think that that original seeding of it as community commitments that we, the people, uh, I think we forget that today. We are inclined, especially my friends on the right, to view the Constitution as primarily an ideological document mm -hmm. and to define America in ideological terms when the whole strength came from ideology mattered, but it was... Um, infused with community like right. community commitment if that makes sense yeah no there's there's a there's a parallel for that and uh the i guess the the unfaithing of america i'm not religious i don't believe in shit but i understand the purpose of the community right like it, the, ha having organizing yourself around shared beliefs is one thing organizing because that can go good and go really really bad as well but organizing yourself yeah. around uh, uh, a common belief that is both positive for the community and welcoming of other people, right? Understands fundamentally yeah. what human beings are, right? I mean, we're a, we're a giant organism that only operates at peak efficiency if we're operating together, just like any other organism, right? It's how it works. Um, yeah. But this whole, this in-out group bullshit is just... You, you would think by now we would have figured out how to deal with that. You know what I mean? Just like the whole process of kin selection for me is, is a big thing. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't understand why it, over the last, like, I, I don't know, 60 or 70 years or so, 
it's gone completely tits up for some reason. And I, I, I assume uh, it's probably because of the media and political class have been, you know, it's, it's incumbent upon them to keep us divided so mm-hmm. they can carve out their niche and also to keep us weaker than we would be together. Right. I understand that. But how, how are we so dumb that we can't see this happening? And I, when I say we, I mean the broader we. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, um, you know, one thing when, as you were talk- talking, it made me, it reminded me one of the tremendous benefits of federalism practically applied is the the power to exit. And you have a destination that you could destinations you could exit to, which that's the great um, release valve for the natural sorts of tribal, um, you know, uh, loyalties mm-hmm. and uh, hostilities that are just wired into the human frame, you know, when you have a single country, single religion, single is that you just get this kind of built-in possibility of civil war and destruction where the more you have like dispersed autonomous communities uh, as long as you allow for exit and entry people can sort which is so valuable sure Um, now the danger like what you're saying when you've got this political class that is invested in division Mm. uh, they don't like that kind of diversity right there's just there's one republican kind of ideal and one democrat ideal and they want to sort everybody into those two buckets. And then they want to amp up the hostility between those two tribes. And most people aren't really excited about either tribe. But the political class does what they can to try to force us into that yeah. space. Almost like they want war. Well, you know? I mean, it's it's magician's patter, right? It's like jingling keys to distract a baby. That's It's, it's patter. It's nonsense. Uh, and it kind of betrays it betrays the fact that they, even they don't believe in what they're saying, because if you, if you have a product, like I, I work, I've worked in marketing for years. Um, if you have a product that you believe in, you'll give it away for free sometimes, right? Because you believe in that, you know, that that product is good. People will see the value in it. You don't need to puff, puff them up and make up a bunch of bullshit or run gimmicks or anything like that. And it's, it's a good value proposition that the product can stand on its own without, you know, external, uh, validation, I guess. But mm-hmm. <clears throat> the the bankrupt nature of modern liberalism and conservatism is a problem that is getting bigger and bigger and more obvious. And it probably is. I, I think the divestment from being hardcore Republican or Democrat has probably been a, something that's protected us from more violence, to be honest. I think a lot more yeah. people who are pissed off about shit are just like, like people are like, oh, you think we're going to have a civil war? I'm like, okay, let me stop you right there. A civil war over what and between whom, right? Yeah. It's this isn't right. the North versus the South anymore. Everybody's kind of out on their own island right now, I think. And you you make a point. I think you wrote a, a piece back in April about this for uh, <laughs> I think it was the Washington Post about how um, a lot of people their political affiliation is is shifting towards independent, right? Uh, 40% or so of people in a Gallup poll back then. And this is a pretty, like that we were going into a a very tumultuous midterm election season. So 40% of people said they were independent where 30 and 28% said Democrat and Republican. That's, that's a shift. That's a huge shift, but we don't see that in, in registration, right? Like political registration, people are still having to register as one or the other. I wonder if that's because you can't vote in, in states 
primaries unless you're registered or I don't, I don't know what that is. This episode is brought to you by BlackRifleCoffee.com. Get 20% off your first order with the code CITIZEN. Black Rifle Coffee is the best coffee company in the world. They're our buddies. But we're not just saying that. We also are customers. Join the Black Rifle Coffee Club and get fresh roasted freedom delivered straight to your door. Black Rifle Coffee Company is veteran-operated and supports America's military, law enforcement, and first responders, not just by saying they do, which is what a lot of companies do, but they actually do it. They give you the best coffee, and they also send coffee to uh, to these guys on the front lines, the people that support uh, support us. So get premium coffee delivered every month. Choose your favorite roast, whether you like light, dark, or medium. Choose the grind. Whether you want ground coffee, uh, whole beans so you can ground it yourself, which is what I recommend, or coffee rounds if you're in an office or something like that and you need uh, Keurig. You can also choose your delivery schedule, and it'll come to you anytime you like. Members also get free shipping and access to exclusive partner discounts. Get 20% off your first order with the code CITIZEN. Go to BlackRifleCoffee.com and get those deals today. Next up is Ghostbed. Ghostbed.com forward slash drink it bros. Right now, Ghostbed is offering a 40% off Ghostbed bundle where you get a mattress and an adjustable base. So you don't need a code for that. You just add the mattress and the adjustable base uh, and it'll apply auto apply 40% off. And then anything else you add to that order also 40% off. For everything else, you can use the code drinking bros at ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros and you're going to get 30% off everything on the site now they have the best sheets mattresses pillows covers all this stuff you can get all you can get an entire bedroom suite here and you can get it all for 30% off a month but wait there's more you can buy a mattress for about you can buy the whole thing for about 35 bucks a month because they have a zero down zero percent financing plan that extends out to 60 months that's five years which is about the amount of time that a bedroom suite lasts. So that's a great deal, folks. Go check it out at ghostbed.com forward slash drink it bros. So, so in some states that you don't have partisan registration, mm. uh, other states you do have partisan registration, but you have more and more a tendency towards either open primary or what's called a partially closed primary, which mm. either way you have the option to vote in the other party's primary. If you want, you could show up uh, or you show up as an independent and you can choose which primary you want to vote in. That's becoming more of a trend. It's a real threat to party bosses because when you get more sort of moderated voices mm -hmm. in the primaries. And what we see, for example, in my own state of North Carolina is recently independents are voting in some, t in some cases at a higher rate than the partisans are in the primaries. And so you get then more generally more likely to get moderated candidates when what we see the parties doing empirically, we see the parties are recruiting more extreme candidates. They're not even trying to get centrist anymore for reasons we could get into. But there's this overall like destruction of the value of the brand. Both parties have presided over destruction of the value of their brands. Uh, and the only thing that saves them is one another. Right. You could be like the Republican Party's brand is horrible, but thank goodness for them. There's the Democrat Party. So you <laughs> like. At, at election day, you get uh, to choose between Tweedledum and Tweedledumber. Yeah. The Wall yeah. And I, you know, you can see more people uh, 
from from your uh, from the Gallup poll in, in April, but also just in general in the in the dialogue, are kind of fed up with all this bullshit. Um, <clears throat> but they don't. There's nowhere for them to. You, you said before about uh, divesting. Uh, the having the ability to leave if you want uh, it calls into question the social contract right I, I, a lot of libertarian people will say there is no social contract because a contract requires my consent and there is no consent I have to live in this system of government um, but you know I, I don't know what the solution is I, I, I don't see anytime we've seen third party candidates like Ross Perot is the only reason Bill Clinton was ever president if, if he had not run, George H.W. Bush would have won in 92 pretty easily, actually, I think. Um, but there there is something about having the option to right. divest from one thing or another to, to that puts the onus on the institution to continue serving people, right? right. It's just like uh, my, my friend Corey DeAngelis, the guy that works on all the school choice stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, this is his main premise. Like if the if the state-run school is good – then parents won't leave if given the option. And if, if you're afraid that they're going to leave if given the option, that means you know your product sucks. So, yeah, that's right. so I wonder from your perspective, um, we, we know that the Democratic and Republican products suck. What is the option for people in America, these 40% of people who just don't like what's going on and want something different? Yeah, so... You know, because the way we do, I won't get into it. So there's sort of a math reason that you generally have two major parties. It has to do with the sort of single member district uh, plurality system of elections in America versus a proportional representation you get in Europe. Uh, So that means sort of mathematically, it's hard for a third party to emerge absent some kind of incredible crisis. Right. Um, So that that's one challenge. You're more likely to get reform within the parties, but where they're hung up. Uh, and I'm going around my elbow to get to my thumb for an answer for you, as my grandmother might say, uh, where we get hung up is um, those parties, because of reforms starting in the 60s and 70s, the Democrats enacted that spread to the Republican Party for a variety of reasons. You ended up sort of empowering the kind of intellectual, uh, higher socioeconomic status class within both parties. And they have a particular set of interests Mm. right so that's why you see both parties kowtow to uh, big business sort of what we might call unpatriotic international corporations that happen to be headquartered sort of in the u.s uh but conveniently put stuff overseas when it suits them so their 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 allegiance to that kind of neoliberalism uh to sort of interventionism you get the whole list where they they in many ways are so similar and somehow cast themselves as diametrically opposite right when really they're quite similar in many ways so the, the, the answer, I think, is most likely, I believe, to come from reform within the party, which means taming the power of a very elite high-level donor class, which probably means changing some of the campaign finance rules that empowered them in the first place, uh, which kind of gets up against some First Amendment concerns, but I think you can get around them probably. But the parties have got to reform them themselves. And I think you see some state-level parties are more reasonable than others. Uh, but that's more likely than a third party is my point, because mm. just the massive resources it takes and the parties continually re-rig the rules to keep their competitors out. Right. And so you'd be up against that too. Um, but you always have the opportunity every time a party takes Congress with the substantial majority, they have the opportunity to begin right there 
changing a lot of the rules. And so far, every time they've they've abdicated that responsibility. Um, so that's also a possibility if you got sure. decent people in Congress. Yeah, but we don't, and we're not going to, right? Like what? It's it's like uh, the barrier to entry is too great for a, a force large enough to get into one of these parties and stop. Uh, what what you? I mean, the nail has been hit on the head. It's it's all it's always about money, right? So both parties take massive amounts of money from the military industrial complex, from the tech community, and from the pharmaceutical industry, and that's not going to stop. Like it, they're not going to vote themselves out of office. That's not how that works, right? So I wonder, you know, what's left after that? I think well, so you've got uh, another way to have reform within the party. Within the party label, is you have essentially independent candidates that run under a label because they get that boost by being mm-hmm. Republican versus independent. And uh, so you can see some of that. You sort of see it with the wealthy people who can run on their own. Um, so that's one avenue. Uh, to get into office, but like you said, you have to come in in numbers to change the rules. Um, but I think that that is the only way. Is you're going to have to have some kind of change in the rules around finance, and that means some sort of majority that truly means they want to do things differently. Um, I think people expected that with the Trumpers when they came in, mm-hmm. and for a variety of reasons they weren't going to get it. But that there was that appeal to uh, the, people found the outsider truth teller, as it were, uh, appealing. And so that kind of paints the way for other candidates, um, maybe to have to come in with more competence as well, which I think was lacking mm-hmm. um, the Trumpers. Yeah, sure. but there's no simple answer, that's for sure. I mean, what I say in the book is, yeah, we, we, we got to begin in our communities. You know, I mean, um, let's retake our town councils and school boards. Mm-hmm. See how that goes, right? Sure, yeah. Begin democratic muscles, and then go from from there. Yeah, it's a it's a symptom of uh, of maybe all of the West, but certainly in America, where we we primarily try to solve problems downstream, which is not a good way to handle. Like if you're a what an ounce of prevention's worth a pound of cure, that's a pretty old statement. You know what I mean? We've we've known this for a very long time that it doesn't make sense to let something fester. Uh, but it also, you know, in real time, <clears throat> the ability to uh, work backwards and and find root causes. The reason it's not done uh, typically is because it's it can be very difficult to understand root causes, right? I mean, we we have some idea of what we we think they might be, but in this case, I don't think there's any question that money and power, the confluence of money and power in politics, is a big fucking problem, right? I mean. Uh, it's it's one that's not going away either but so at the federal level there's a very there's no chance that you're going to affect that i don't think um not immediately I, anyway but you can you can certainly affect it at the local level you can like so there are states so a big problem right is money that comes from people who don't live in the area that's going to be represented by the politician they throw their money into that race mm-hmm. right because they want to affect the outcome in congress sure. right the, the power there have been from what i can recall three state level efforts to restrict that money and two were struck down by federal circuit courts one was not uh and i believe it's in alaska i think there are openings for states to begin to try to police that flow of money from the outsiders which to me i feel like my progressive and small c conservative friends are in agreement on that like something seems wrong mm-hmm. about rich people who don't live here 
decide what our election is going to be. Or now we saw in this last midterm, we're going to see, I, it's just going to be horrible. We're going to see it in the general and then future midterms, one party investing in the worst kinds of people from the other party in that party's primary to influence the outcome of the general election. Both parties now are going to do that, right? Because mm -hmm. the Democrats, just at the national level, dropped $55 million on 12 terrible Republican candidates in the primaries, six of whom won, all of whom went on to be defeated in the general, which is what the Democrats wanted. Well, Republicans are going to be doing the same thing. Sure, yeah. Uh, at some point, states have to ask, are we going to allow this kind of outside money? And then the Supreme Court will have to weigh in because I would say, unfortunately, we've equated spending on elections with free speech. And I don't think that's what the founders intended when they wrote the First Amendment. Uh, I doubt it. I mean, um, Mitt Romney can is primarily to blame for that bullshit. He lobbied pretty hard for Citizens United and that. You know, that that was there. There was a pl plenty of political tumult before that. Plenty of, uh, you know, CD funding and stuff like that. But it's bulls on parade now. I mean, yeah. uh, a foreign national can spend $100 million in, in our election and nobody bats an eye anymore. Or you can yeah. funnel millions of dollars from a, from a, what's essentially a Ponzi scheme, right, into politics on both sides of the aisle, trying to yeah. buy influence, and that's protected by the First Amendment. Uh, man. We're coming full circle to how we started with, you know, what is our understanding of the Constitution? Mm -hmm. And we took what were supposed to be very severe and necessary limits on the federal government and um, out of a, a proper desire to protect the equal rights and dignity of American citizens in the states, right? You have the 14th Amendment. But then we began to use that to import that kind of expansive reading of the entire Bill of Rights into states and communities so that, you know, you and your, your town, you can't uh, stop people from accessing pornography on the public library computers mm. because Supreme Court says so because First Amendment. Like I can go down the list of all the ways that we took a limit on the feds and limited what we can do in our communities, um, including limiting money, including saying a corporation's a person, right? All that came through that process. So at some point, we do have to wrestle with how we understand what our constitution means. Um, yeah. Well, I think yeah. uh, before we get there, we probably need to um, figure out what it means to be a citizen. That's kind of the premise of this show. Um, the definition of a citizen is a legally recognized member of a state with associated rights and obligations or responsibilities. Um, now, we talk a lot about our rights, what we're mm – -hmm what we're what we're supposed to get we talk very uh freak and frequently about our responsibilities and we perform them even less right um if if all of this is indeed an organism and uh as any structure is the strength of it comes from its ability to work together right and when everybody performs their individual responsibilities the weight gets a little bit lighter and things move a little bit smoother but we don't do that um, and it's kind of, you know, the name of your book is I Citizen. So I want to pivot to that in that vein. Uh, what what are the main premises that you write about in this book before we move forward? Sure, sure, sure. And I have to ask, like, I assume at some point you've uh, referenced the Viktor Frankl quote about how we need a statue of responsibility on the West Coast to offset the Statue of Liberty on the East Coast. Yes. When he said that, you know, rights and responsibilities. Mm -hmm. So in the book, um, I Citizen... 
uh, the first part of it, what I do, just taking my political science background, is I tackle this um, widespread narrative that America is even divided red versus blue on the verge of civil war. And I just show with readily available, credible data, most Americans are not that ideological. They don't really care for either political party and they're tolerant. They're uh, willing to um, compromise and they're fairly center right on most issues. So they're not uh, they're not ready to be at war with each other. And they have pretty stable opinions on stuff. They're not sophisticated philosophers or uh, politicians, but they have pretty stable, recognizable views on a lot of issues. Right. But then we have a political class that is severely divided stream left and right, uh, not just in terms of philosophy, but also I would say temperament. Like they actually actively hate, despise the other side, right? So it's not just a philosophical dispute. And these people uh, have used this myth of us being divided to justify their undemocratic amassment of power in Washington, D.C., where it's administered largely through agencies and courts that don't have to stand for any kind of election in front of we the people. So the real enemy, I say, of sort of the American future and peace is a political class that profits from our division. And then the sad thing is that as we come to believe we're divided, we become open to secession. We become open to, to divorcing um, uh, because we believe that our neighbor down the street actually is a loon, mm-hmm. right? Even the people we know personally, even if they vote for the other side, we know they're not loons and we get along with them, most of us. So anyway, um, where I land is trying to tackle this very hard question uh, you keep getting at, which is what do you do? And I don't have any silver bullets. I say, begin with the thing you have the most control over, which is your own heart, right? Uh, Because any kind of reform begins with the person, reform yourself, you know, and any kind of actually, you know, true healing of the body takes time and we all want that pill right we want that mm-hmm. one law it's going to fix it no this is a sickness right so how do you begin to get healthy with those small local steps and who knows what will come from that but at least we give it a shot sure you know so i really urge people get to know your neighbor start solving problems you know start and then get engaged in local politics get to know local politicians and um maybe you begin to retake power if nothing else it's a means of inoculating ourselves against the, the poison of ideology. So at least we stop them from driving that wedge deeper. Because right now about 20 to 24%, I'd say, of Americans are hardcore ideologues. Like they're committed to Team Red or Team Blue. Mm. That percentage keeps going up. And when we get to a broad enough percentage, then we do have a serious like civil war concern. Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I think over the last couple of years, it could be difficult for people to, <clears throat> particularly people who exist in echo chambers, that is uh, folks who get all their information about the left from Fox News and people who get all their information about the right from MSNBC or CNN. It could be hard for them to believe your premise that we're not nearly as divided as the media and political class would have us believe. But as someone who wanders in and out of these political aisles it's definitely true like I, I see it all the time like if you strip people down uh r- remove the names of candidates and the political parties and just ask them questions about policy you will see very different answers right than you would get if you asked do you support the right or the left or do you support like it's if you've ever read a, a poll and read 
Don't just read the outcome of the poll, by the way. Look down and see what question was actually asked, right? Because you can make a poll say pretty much anything. Now, to your, yeah, they 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 do very frequently go, oh, go fucking, oh my god, it's so it's 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 uh, exhausting, honestly. But yeah, you know, there. go ahead, go ahead. The the solution to it, as you said, is just involvement. It's like sunlight is the best disinfectant. That's one thing people say. So just being aware of something sometimes is an inoculation to it happening because you can't mm-hmm. that pe- people know they can't get away with it. These people are um, they're criminals, right? They're, I mean, at, at their heart, at their heart, they're criminals. They're they're taking advantage. Um, we're all playing by the rules, and they're taking advantage of the fact that we're all playing by the rules. And then it gets to a point where they're enforcing the rules, so they can enforce us to play by the rules while they refuse to play by the rules. Now that's authoritarianism, right? That's not how any of this is supposed to work. But you know, calling, m- making it obvious that that people aren't playing by the rules, I think, is a very important step. And if it is indeed the truth that most people are do have commonly held beliefs, like I don't know anybody in the middle class that wants to pay more taxes. That's fucking stupid. Like, it, there's no, there's no way. I don't care what any poll says. No, there's literally no way that people who are struggling to buy gas and put food on the table are like, you know what? We should send more money to Ukraine. There's, I just can't imagine that anybody believes that that's a really, and if they do, they're fucking stupid because that's a dumb thing. That's, that's a maladaptive trait, evolutionarily speaking, like you're going to die and your family's going to die if you continue to let that happen. But you do see that, right? Like you see all these people with the Ukrainian flag and their Twitter bio and shit like that, or people that will take hard stands on this or that because their team. And it seems like, and the absence of religion in the 21st century politics has become people's religion now. Like it's their identity. It used to be, if you, if I'm going to make a decision in my, my life about where I live, how I raise my kids, how I conduct myself in public, I go back to my religious or cultural beliefs. Right. And that's my guidestone. Like, all right, does it match up with this? Cool. Then I'll make this decision. And now it is based on what, in, in a large way, based on what political group you fall into but there's no that's not a a guidestone that's that's quicksand you know what i mean it's all over the place and it's determined by people who are trying to manipulate and control you yeah i i I find more and more it's just helpful to think about um you know there's two sort of you can imagine animating spirits in a in human society and that's old as humanity uh and that is a spirit of division and a spirit of, let's say, community. I won't say unity because a community, if it's healthy, has lots of disagreement. Mm-hmm. So you have division and then you have community. And a lot of political phenomena seem to me to, pretty, to be explainable in those terms. So you have people who benefit, who profit from division, and so they sow it from both sides of the aisle. And then you have people who are naturally inclined to community. And... Uh, their communities being pulled apart. Um, why? Because community means so much to them that they're willing to compromise, right? And not be as ideological as the dividers want them to to be. And uh, I think the more you strengthen that community, the more you inoculate against the dividers and make them nuts. Mm-hmm. So that, that to me, even if you can't retake power, let's say, absent some kind of earthquake that we can't make happen, we can hopefully be ready if it were to happen. Mm-hmm. But let's say you can't. Let's say retain powers off the table. Then the inoculation is everything. It's the community preserves 
your people, the people you love, uh, from being dragged into these cesspools on left or right, right? So I think that it's it, 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 the simplest form. It means you get your uncle you love to stop watching Fox News and come outside and go for a walk every day instead, right? right? And how you do that? Because you go for a walk with him, right? Uh, you you save one person, right? They're not going to be picking up a rifle. But the implication there is that uh, your effort is required, right? Yes. Not not yes. your thoughts and prayers, but your actual physical effort is required. Yeah. Yeah, I, the very first thing when I get to the solution section of my book is uh, I talk about love your neighbor. And I, I try to be as clear as I can. Love is meaningless as a sentiment. Hmm. It only means something through action, right? That's, that's what real love is. It's action. And so there's no way around it. There's no silver bullet. There's no law. There's no book to read other than mine, of course. Uh, but there's nothing. There's nothing that can be done around you that you can hope for there's only what work you do um and and that's how you retake a a society is each person doing their small negligible bit hmm. in faith yeah and we're i mean you know i feel like um a lot of this stuff never would have happened if americans had been a little more in tune with how uh politics work i guess or maybe their responsibilities in therein it's it's very frustrating to see people who don't understand the system of government we're in and why you know because on the conservative side you'll hear a lot of people bitch and moan that we're not a democracy we're a republic like yeah fair enough that's a good point to make i guess um on the left you'll like nobody on the left understands federalism like i i honestly have not heard especially not from the political class, um, but even commentators, I haven't heard anybody articulate, and maybe maybe it's out of fear because they don't want to go outside the party line, which is something that's very common as well, but uh, Roe was bad. Like, I don't care about abortion, frankly, but I do care about our system of government operating the way it's intended to because otherwise, what the fuck are we even doing here? So, yeah, it, it's all the power is now back in your hands at the state legislative level, level. And what we saw in these midterms are people who voted for Senate and Congress, federal elections that voted, 30% of them voted because of abortion. That's fucking stupid because these people now, because of the Supreme Court ruling, very likely have no effect on abortion because it's been sent back to the states, right? It's now a constitutional issue. So these people in Congress and the Senate have no say over what's going to happen there. Rick Caruso's exit polling in, in the city of L.A. was he didn't even comment on abortion, but they still there still are a lot of exit polls that show people voted in that election because of abortion. This the mayor of a city, by the way, has no control over whether or not abortion is legal in that state. So we're like, how, my, I guess my question is, how are we going to build on that foundation of complete ignorance about how governance works in America? I think well, a couple of things that go through my mind is one is um, I, I think there's some uh, benefit in average Americans not being that interested in politics. Uh, there's you know, they're less uh, susceptible to being pulled into the ideological whirlpool. I think we have to take the exit poll stuff with a grain of salt. I mean, you, you put somebody on the spot um, with an exit poll, they're grasping for 
something that sounds acceptable to the person they think will sound acceptable to the person who's doing it. And so you, they're, they're not always that reliable. I mean, you're going to pick up on trends, mm. right? They're not all going to say Bozo the Clown when what they really mean is taxes, you know. Um, so I think there's there's a little bit of that that, that happens. Um, but that figure isn't far off the mark of, you know, people 30% or whatever being uh, animated in some way, in part because they don't know who has authority and who doesn't uh, over these kinds of things. I think for me, um, the... The main thing is I don't know I don't know if we you would have it would be very fruitful to embark on a sort of widespread sort of constitutional education mm. project. Um, I think again for me the the main thing is seed whatever sorts of inoculations we can through community engagement, getting people engaged, get to know their neighbor. Um, that that's sort of the the pathway to preserving ourselves against this onslaught of the the political class trying to trying to pull us apart mm-hmm. you know um, but with that said i mean it would be nice if schools could teach stuff a little better i mean <laughs> well good luck know, with, with that I mean, <laughs> so much of this turns on can you reclaim an education system that's just terrible not not just because kids don't understand how the constitution works or, or whatever but just it just sucks the life out of them you know mm-hmm. it just sucks the creativity out of these children which is fundamentally it's a horrible outcome right i'm I'm thinking about he intends it uh but but it is sort of ironic that the schools produce like compliant little uncreative cogs well i don't know that it's uh i I guess it is ironic but it's not unintentional right this is rockefeller said this in in the 1920s he's like we don't want smart creative independent uh uh independently educated people we want compliant workers people who are just smart enough to make the machines go and that's kind of how it's worked since the very early part of the 20th century, you know, it yeah. used to be an uh, American public education used to be the three R's, I guess, which, you know, only one of them starts with an R, but the three R's were primarily taught in the home. And then you went outside the home for more advanced education because those things were all just the same. Um, yeah. But sometime around post-industrial revolution and right at the beginning of factory work is where it changed. You know what I mean? Like the public education system was designed or redesigned in a way at that point to produce compliant workers. And I talk about this on the show all the time. Think about what it means to be a quote unquote good student in primary education. Quiet, right? Do what you're told, turn in your work on time. And then, of course, there's the element of uh, uh, doing the work properly, obviously. But if you if you're a parent, and you go into a classroom and, and, you're, and the t- teacher tells you you're, you have a good student. They're not just saying that you, they do well on the tests. There's a, there's a whole other measure of that, and it's about control and compliance and stuff like that, and that's the wrong answer. If we can't, it, we're not doing that the right way from the very beginning. So, so to me then, like a key area of community engagement is gonna be in your school. Uh, you know, and there's a couple of avenues. Sure, run for school board. I, I don't think you're gonna get very far there until we figure out how to smash up school districts. There's mm-hmm. too few of them, uh, they're, they're massive. Uh, bureaucracies now as a result uh but you know get to know the teachers the principal that kind of thing retake ptso's you know parent teacher organizations have just become booster clubs right there's they're not a source of accountability or even hard questions so that's within our power right and that might have an actual effect on the compliance Mm -hmm. the closed-mindedness that schools produce um yeah, there's a lot of exciting stuff going on in education reform space that um, 
I, I hope some of it pans out like alternative teachers, colleges, the whole, the whole thing, right? what Corey does, school choice, portability. Mm -hmm. I think that is the key, right? Um, I don't think we'll ever have a nation of Aristotle's or constitutional scholars. And I'd be a little nervous if we did. Yeah. But uh, the, 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 the non-compliance that to me, what you were saying, that to me is the biggest threat is we create compliant cattle and we need citizens who are willing to dissent, you know, right. Whether crazy left or crazy right, I don't care. Don't be willing to peacefully dissent. That's a great start. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, uh, you know, for a very long time, the greatest export America had was its people and ideas. And, and it, it was, revolutionary from the very beginning the idea that um you know we went from the magna carta which gave wardens and governors rights for the first time uh to actual people having rights for the first time in about half a millennia or so and mm -hmm. we didn't do uh this is another thing that I wanted to talk to you about today because a lot of what you talk about is based in, in you, of the person, the individual taking action. We didn't exercise that freedom muscle enough. We were content for a very long time to um, just see to ours, right, to make sure that our lives are going fine and whatever else. And, you know, instead of what Ben Franklin warned us about, which is trading – liberty for temporary security we traded liberty for convenience because uh on the left obviously they they had uh one one idea of convenience and on the right i think people just wanted to be left alone but that's not how this works like you don't you don't get to just be left alone well, why would you expect to that we're a community you know what i mean like it's the 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 fact that we call it a community implies the fact that you have responsibilities there right I, so you mentioned earlier the social contract, you know, and the sort of maybe more agrarian conservative response, you know, the front porch republic style response mm -hmm. that uh, the social contract is, it's, uh, it's not a, it's not a natural human condition, right? You don't come to the world and sign a contract with your people, right? You're just there. You're part of that. You can leave, right? At a certain age. Um, and we'll all think less of you, right? Mm -hmm. But you have the right to leave, but there's no like formal contract that you scrutinize and then agree not even close to that uh, in principle. It's more you're born into a community uh, and you, you have certain expectations from the members of that community and then uh, they expect things from you. And, and that's, I think people ultimately, that's what allows them to grow and prosper. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you begin to break that down um, when you, you view everything through a purely ideological lens, you know. But it's not just ideological, right? It's, it's also... Um... That's certainly part of it, and that infects everything. So it's easy to see it and everything. But it's the the at some point over the last fifty years or so, we have it's it's the idea of personal responsibility has left our lexicon. It's not part of our day to day thinking process. You know what I mean? Especially for uh, my generation and younger, it's more what well, what's in it for me, or how does this benefit me, or that's not fair, or whatever, right? man, that's just not going to work. Like if that's your level of effort that you're going to put into your day-to-day -day life, then you're going to get out of it uh, uh, less than what you imagined, I would say. Yeah, I think that's right. I think um, back to the atrophying of the democratic muscle, if you believe you have no agency 
in uh, sort of the decision-making spheres around you, how your schools run, your family, your community, then uh, you you shrink back to just what are your rights, mm -hmm. you know? You see the same thing in the workplace, right? Sure. People become really obsessed with their pay and their benefits when they have no autonomy in the mm -hmm. workplace. It's the same thing in a society. Well, it's, it's ultimately equity, right? And not the way that the progressives use the word today, which is a complete nonsense, nonsensical phrase, but equity in that, um, the, well, think of it in, in terms of the Ikea effect, right? So if you, if you buy something that's already assembled 80%, but you finish the last 20%, then you feel a greater sense of ownership over that product. You feel like that's something that you made. This mm -hmm. is, uh, true for building shitty furniture, but it's also true for, uh, you know, involvement at any level, people take pride, you start to take pride in something because that's, that, that is the physical manifestation of your effort, right? And people's lives are better now because you did something. But when you feel, I, I agree with you hundred percent, when you feel like there's nothing you can do, then you just retreat to nihilism, right? That that's, that, there's nowhere else to go after that. Ultimately it's like, you know, Maslow had some things, right. You mm. know, you, you, you go to that level that you have control over and you seek as much um, satisfaction there, yeah. right? And that's the, I mean, that's the tragedy for young people today is they don't, we have not given them a path to agency. So there's no self-actualization that's going to happen. So you're down at this lower levels and fundamentally unhappy as a yeah. result. And part of that is managing expectation, right? So you, you animated this before, but anybody that thinks this is all going to turn on, on its heel and change immediately, that, that's just not going to happen, right? Or you're talking about decades of work. That, that have to go in before this starts to improve. And right. in our political system, that's difficult because we have four and two, four and six year terms. So, you know, things change a lot, but what don't change are the fundamentals and principles that work to, to govern people, to self-governance up to the point of community governance. Those things are always going to be the same, right? Um, yeah. So that's why I said in faith mm -hmm. is because it's decades of work and you will probably not see the come to fruition correct which is true for most important civilizational civilizational societal familial mm. labors is most of it we won't even see you do it in faith um but i think there's you know you 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 can imagine a pathway right when you you work within your community and then you start to get better people into your state legislature and then they relearn what it means to be a legislator, right? Because that was a key part of the destruction of self-governance was the destruction of legislatures mm -hmm. led, unfortunately, by Republicans in many cases in Congress. Yep. So you kind of train up a whole new generation of state legislators and then they go to Congress and they're ready to do oversight, which uh, Congress doesn't do now. So I think it's not completely a blind faith effort, but it is a generational multi-decade but that's how we all used to think right i mean when i say we i mean people in general it, it wasn't um like the immigrant comes to the new country for opportunities work their ass off have kind of a shitty life have five kids and hopefully those kids get uh, a nice blue collar job somewhere and they can afford to send their kids your grandkids to college that that was the goal and now we don't we're, we're so myopic about the future um like we're, we're standing on the shoulders of giants right now whining that we're not high enough. That's the most fucked up kind of uh, a response to all the sacrifices that's been made for us that I can possibly imagine to whine because of your current conditions, although they're more or less acceptable because of all the effort that these other people have put in. So, but 
where I, I, I push back is that I don't know uh, if they felt like their lives were shitty because they were imbued with a kind of hope. Of course, it's because, purpose. Of course, yeah. no question about that. Yeah. yeah, and so that could be why then, ironically, the people who benefit materially from all that sacrifice mm. are miserable because they have no sense of purpose. So maybe you know? we just need to figure out the next step and not necessarily how to recreate what's happened before because this is going to come up again. We run in this three-generational cycle where one generation struggles, the other one has a pretty good life, and the other one has a pretty comfortable life, which is better than good. But how do you go from the comfortable life back? How do you maintain your sense of purpose, I suppose, is, is a good question to ask. Like, what more can we do? And people, you see people doing it. People are exercising that muscle. It's just misguided nonsense and, and all of the virtue signaling and all the uh, ludicrous activism based on faulty science that we see and in, in the not just in America, by the way, it's all over the globe that people are just fighting for causes that are fucking stupid. Um, but you see them, you see the purpose come to fruition. Like people desire it down to their, like to their DNA. They want purpose in their lives and they'll go find it somewhere if it's not provided to them. That's right. That's right. So, I mean, I, you, yeah. You know, churches came up briefly. I I uh, I lay a lot of the blame at the feet of the churches. Uh, the, their whole raison d'etre is to provide purpose, mm. right? To provide vision and purpose. And oh my God, have they failed? And uh, we should all be in sackcloth and ashes. Anybody who's in any kind of official capacity, in any church at all. I'm I'm Eastern Orthodox. You know, we could have done better. The Catholics certainly could have. My Protestant friends could have. So right there. Uh, you know, my NatCon friends keep looking to a federal political answer for our malaise. Like, no, no, go back to your precious church, mm. right? And you, you're, you're not done raking them over the coals, right? They need to do better. Um, but then I think there's some other kinds of community-level stuff. Even if you're not a believer, you know, um, especially if you're not a believer, there's, there's, you can find purpose within your community, I guess, is the thing. It's mm. not a—I reject the kind of individual going across the plains on his horse, you know, to— self-actualized i think almost always purpose is within a community mm. right but you our, these terrible you know causes as a result yeah they're providing community well charities become industries right in, in the modern world and so our the sense of purpose that we have that we feel this biological need to flex mm -hmm. gets uh absorbed often or misdirected by powerful institutions that that, are, that make a lot of money. So w it becomes more ephemeral. It's not helping your neighbor down the street who's struggling. Instead, it's trying to help somebody across the world or the globe itself. Like we're protecting earth from us, which is the most egocentric nonsense I've ever heard in my life. Literally three and a half billion years ago, a Mars sized object slammed into the side of the earth uh, and blew off the crust, created the moon over time and we're all here still. I mean, this this idea that human beings... Look, I, we should be good stewards of our environment. There's no question about that. We shouldn't do stupid shit. And all the plastics that are getting into water, it's definitely going to affect human beings. But the idea that we're, quote-unquote, saving the planet is is stupid to me. It doesn't make any sense. Like, we should be talking... And it's not, not that the idea itself is stupid. It's how we frame the statement. We're saving the planet. No, we need to save people, Right? I don't give a fuck about the planet. We need to save people. People are the ones that live and die and who suffer and benefit from things. That's so I think there's something 
in the same way that the political class has tried to divide us in these certain areas, I think that the, the charitable class or whatever you want to call that institution has done the same by making the idea of helping or charity more ephemeral and not connected to one person. Like you're one person. I can't stop hunger, but I can go stop that motherfucker's hunger right now. I've got the money in my pocket to do. I can go do it right now. But for some reason that is off limits for us. Like we don't even, we don't even think about doing that. I think it's almost like uh, we want to be gods because we don't know how to be men. You know, we, we need the big, I want to save the world Hmm. because we, we can't find contentment in saving this one person today, not even saving them, just making sure they're not hungry today. Um, There's that sort of, and I think it comes back to, if you're not in community, it's frightening. I mean, that's the other part of it, right? There's nothing really frightening about posters and protests and you go with your friends Mm. and you're, you know, we're going to save the world and boo big oil or boo whoever, boo whatever. But to go to a a homeless person and sit down with them and give them food, right? Don't just put money in their can or whatever. Mm. It's scary, right? To go work, you ever work in a soup kitchen? That shit is scary. They are not all grateful paupers, right? They're (laughs) drunk and strung out and ungrateful and unsafe, right? Who wants to do that? I'd rather say boo poverty, you know, I didn't, uh, you know, hold up a sign somewhere. Yeah, um, sure. So it's back to flexing the local muscles, mm. you know? Yeah, I agree hundred percent. And it's, uh, you know, you have to have the temerity to reject all the noise or at least sort through it and, and figure out ways that you can make an impact. One of the things I like to say is that if you can turn your pain and suffering into empathy for others, you can save your life and theirs. Right. It's, it's, uh, but it it only happened. It doesn't happen in the, in the aggregate or in the ephemeral. It happens on the individual level. And it's, and it's a symptom of the same disease. We see this nihilism we see throughout culture where people speaking to other people face to face in a way that takes into account that that's an actual human being I'm talking to is something that we have a lot of trouble with now. We we immediately look at them and make an assessment. Like, oh, this person, they, they've got dreadlocks. They must be a fucking libtard or whatever the fuck conservatives say these days. Or this person's wearing a red hat, so they must be a racist Nazi. It's like, no, that's a human being, just like you are. And they came to their realizations probably in the same way that you did, right? You just got different results. But the work is done. It's It's there. You can go look at it. And you can have a conversation with that person about how they got to where they got. And you can tell them how you got to where you got. And it's hard yeah. to hate up close. It's hard to get up in a one-on-one situation like that and hate that person for how they came to their beliefs. Because there's probably going to be some sad fucking story behind it. Sure. it's That's a whole other like uh, episode topic is mm. the sort of lingering effect of Puritanism mm. in American culture, right? We need everyone to be an angel or a demon in the elect right. or in the and, uh yeah, but that, you know, we talk about your personal suffering. I think uh, Victor Frankl, again, you know, mm-hmm. a man's search, and he talks about how you, you know, it, maybe you don't think about the suffering in your life as, you know, trying to figure out the why of it. And instead, you view it as, you know, it's a question that life is an, is asking you, right? And then your your mission is to conjure a suitable answer to it. Now, how, I, how will I respond to the suffering? And then, of course, serving others is... Um, it's actually a quite a good sort of salve. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, it's it. The middle of the twentieth century was 
a lot of people were talking about that. Victor Frankl is one of them. Man's Search for Meaning is a book to talk about. It's a very good book. If you haven't read it, I, I highly recommend it. Um, but Gandhi was saying, you know, something very similar. It's like if you want to truly find yourself, lose yourself in the service of others. This idea that, and it, this isn't like some profound idea. It just is the a very simple recognition of what we are. We are a, a group of human beings in a community, no matter where you are on earth, right? And no matter how large or small the community might be. Um, well, is, is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience before we get out of here and also tell them where they can find your book? Sure. Uh, I like to joke, you know, my book is sold uh, wherever you find David French's books. Uh, it's, I guess it's on yeah, it's funny to maybe three people. Uh, yeah, Amazon or, or you know, wherever you'll, you'll find it. Um, no, I mean, I appreciate the time. I mean, there's so many for me in the end. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is that uh, don't give up on the country. It's not as bad as we've been led to believe. Your average fellow citizen wants to do a good job. And, and the proof, if nothing else, is if you've ever been on a jury, you get people from all walks of life. And you know what? They really try. Hmm. They try to serve justice is what I've observed and experienced. Like if you, tr if you give Americans authority, they, they might surprise you with how well they handle it. And, um, and they're mostly decent. So let's give it a shot. You know, mm -hmm. what do we got to lose? Right. Yeah. Leave people in DC in charge. How's that going for you? You know? Yeah. Well, we, I agree. Uh, I appreciate your time today. Make sure you go check out the book. I citizen, uh, it's available pretty much everywhere. You can buy books. Um, and uh, thank you for your time today. Thank you all for listening. This has been Citizen. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 